Support for this NPR podcast comes from Nature's Way, maker of Sambucus, drug-free supplements made from the elderberries that are only grown at the perfect altitude and hand-picked at their peak. It's part of their commitment to let traditional wisdom lead the way. Learn more at naturesway.com. Being stalked by a tormentor you can't see is scary enough on its own. But the new film, The Invisible Man, suggests that the worst part might be the fact that no one would believe you. Elizabeth Moss plays Cecilia, a woman who finally escapes an abusive partner. But soon she senses that he's everywhere following her. I'm Stephen Thompson. And I'm Linda Holmes. We're talking about The Invisible Man today on Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR, so don't go away. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp, the online counseling service dedicated to connecting you with a licensed counselor to help you overcome whatever stands in the way of your happiness. Fill out a questionnaire and get matched with a professional tailored to your needs. And if you aren't satisfied with your counselor, you can request a new one at any time free of charge. Visit BetterHelp.com slash happy hour to get 10% off your first month. Get the help you deserve with BetterHelp. Welcome back. You just met Stephen Thompson from NPR Music. Also with us is Glenn Weldon from the NPR Arts Desk. Hi, Glenn. Hey, Linda. And in our fourth chair, also from the Arts Desk, we have Netta Ulabi. Hi, Netta. Hello. It's always a pleasure to have you with us. We are talking today about uh, The Invisible Man. Originally, there was an idea that there was going to be an Invisible Man movie that was going to be part of this. Uh, Glenn, help me out. Uh, it was going to be part of the Dark Universe uh, reboots of Universal Monsters. Uh-huh. Uh, Johnny Depp was slated. We dodged a bullet there. Yeah. <laughs> we dodged like like Neo in the Matrix. Whole, we dodged that bullet. The whole thing kind of unhappened after yeah. the, the mummy, mummy. Yeah. after the Tom Cruise mummy. And so now we have this very, very different film. And as like, we mentioned in the intro, Elizabeth Moss is playing this woman who, after she leaves the guy that she lives with, who clearly you don't really see what he was doing, but clearly he was abusive and controlling. And then he dies. This is all in the trailer. He dies. And then even though everybody believes him to be dead, she is sure that he is somehow just invisible and stalking her and is everywhere trying to scare her and torment her. Glenn, how did this work for you? I mean, I'd recommend it. Uh, Elizabeth Moss is in a mode that is becoming quickly familiar for her. She is our current cultural muse of suffering. Uh, She did it in Mad Men where, you know, it it was a lot of fun for us to see her seething with righteous indignation. And of course, that's what Handmaid's Tale is all about and her smell. There is a long tradition of the suffering woman trope in Hollywood. It tends to get slotted into two genres, melodrama and horror thriller. So when it is in melodrama, it doesn't take much to push it into camp. Uh, And uh, I think we avoid that here, A, because it's not a melodrama, but B, Elizabeth Moss is so good at being raw and real that it never gets performative. It always becomes something a little bit more uncomfortable to watch. I think one of the reasons people are responding so strongly to this movie is because the central metaphor slots so neatly into what this movie's about. So how difficult it is to leave an abusive relationship when nobody around you believes that it's abusive. And also, not for nothing, that this kind of male toxicity is so omnipresent and so uh, accepted that it is invisible. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You see how that works? I do. Uh, This film was very lean. I wanted it leaner. It had kind of a lumpy plot structure. And I think that threw off, for me, the uh, suffering to catharsis 
fuel mixture. If we're going to get this much suffering, I wanted the catharsis, and, you know, spoiler, there's going to be a, a satisfying yeah. moment at the end. I wanted the catharsis to land harder, to spend yeah. a little bit more time on it. I think the ending is ungainly. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So I'd recommend it with some caveats. Yeah. And we should mention this is written and directed by Lee Wanell, who is an actor as well as a director and writer. His take on this is to emphasize her frustration with the fact that people don't believe her. And what I like about the way they've structured it is they make it so that you probably wouldn't believe her either (laughs) in this situation. They don't make it something super obvious where it's like, why does no one believe her? It's for understandable reasons. They assume that she's dealing with the end of this relationship. It begins as something that it's kind of clear that nothing You know, nothing about what she's saying makes sense. It's the kind of thing that people say, oh, I just feel like he's around all the time. And it begins as a very kind of nebulous thing. Netta, how did you like this? I really enjoyed it. Yeah. I thoroughly enjoyed it. This movie is completely my kind of sweet spot and it's attention to both low and high culture. And, uh, you know, I agree completely with you, Glenn, although one thought I have about Elizabeth Moss is, as our patron saint of suffering, it's a very specific kind of female suffering. Yeah. She's in these very on-the-nose, very patriarchal situations, right, mm-hmm. in Mad Men or The Handmaid's Tale and now in this where she's, she's in an abusive relationship with this man. One thing that I think is really important about the movie that I really enjoyed is that it actually goes back to the original source novel in some way and its incredible unease with technology mm-hmm. and the way that our, our relationship with, with technology is so messed up and and fraught and untrustworthy. Because it's an H.G. Wells novel. It's an H.G. Like this, it's just like the black mirror of its time. And it's why this novel can continually be re- reinvented and reinvented. He wrote it right after the Industrial Revolution. And when you sort of look at the timing, it's amazing. It was, it was about 20 years after the end of the Industrial Revolution. It's about 20 years after the Internet mm-hmm. came and mm-hmm. enriched our lives. Yeah. And mm. and I really feel like you know, the resonance is sort of just boom right there. Yeah. Oh, and one more thing. The day after I saw the movie, I was walking down the street and I see this guy completely wrapped up because of coronavirus. He's wearing a face mask. Sure. He's got oh, a man. And I was like, oh, my God, it's like Claude Rains. Yeah. So many yeah, yeah. creepy resonances. <laughs> so many. <laughs> so many. Uh, Stephen, what did you think? Yeah, I liked it, too. I, I think that it's really interesting to look at this film and its budget. This movie cost, uh, I've seen estimates, between 7 and $9 million to make. And it is a continuation of this larger cinematic universe that Universal was trying to get off the ground Oof. that follows The Mummy, which cost, I don't have the number in front of me, but I'm just going to say $800 billion, <laughs> <laughs> and that, which no one cared about and uh-huh. no one liked. And you just think, they, yeah, they threw a whole bunch of mummy effects at the screen. And this, in lieu of that, has a story. And it has a story with resonance. It has a story that's relatable. It has an evil tech bro. It has lots and lots of gaslighting. It touches on all these things without hitting them too hard on the nose. I thought the word ungainly to describe, particularly the later portion of this movie, that's a very good word for it. This movie felt long to me. Once it kind of gets into the obligatory just kind of monster chase segment, it just feels much more familiar. But there's so much effective work work done with like just a floating knife or a footprint on a bed sheet. That's technically a special effect, but it costs almost nothing. And your brain fills out the rest. I like how much this movie trusts and respects the audience's brains to fill in the blanks. And it doesn't have to throw a bunch of like big splashy effects at the wall. Right. And I don't I don't know exactly how they accomplished it, but I don't think it's a spoiler to say, you know, you're eventually going to see some fighting between a person you can see and an invisible person. And I think they 
they did pretty well shooting those things so that it seems believable. And not silly. And right. not, and not silly. silly. Exactly. Because we've talked before about the fact that sometimes, you know, on your, your inexpensive sci-fi shows, it sometimes seems like, oh, it's an invisible monster. And it's because you don't have to pay to show it. <laughs> yep. um, but in this case, I think they did a lot to... To make it really scary, um, Aldous Hodge is a, an yeah. actor I like a lot. He plays her friend. I really like the fact that they chose to make him a friend of hers. He's a man. He's a cop. But it's platonic. Like yeah. it's not. He's not a potential romantic interest. He could be in this story a woman friend, but mm-hmm. she has a man friend that she stays with, who kind of becomes her protector. He has a daughter played by Storm Reed, who's you might know from A Wrinkle in Time or some other things. Um, who I think very charming in this. It's not surprising that she's there partly because an imperiled child is always handy in a movie like this. But the other thing is we're talking about Elizabeth Moss and and patriarchy and stuff like that. Um, As we're talking about Elizabeth Moss (laughs) and patriarchy. um, She also has a way in these roles. It was definitely true in Handmaid's Tale, but I would argue it's even true in Mad Men that you see elements that she's almost... you, You question her sort of where is her mind she has a kind of I I would argue they've overdone it in Handmaid's Tale kind of going in close on her her eyes and the suggestion of madness but she always seems in some way like you're not certain that you really understand what she's thinking or she she has her own kind of potential menace in Mm -hmm. a way that I think is really useful in a movie like this because you understand when she becomes the person who's trying to explain why don't you believe me it's not strictly a traditional idea of a victim she has her own energy yeah and resilience that feels very baked in with her. Did you guys read that interview in, in Vulture with the director? I didn't. It was so great. So apparently she had a lot of control over the script. And one of the things she did was she would take out giant swaths of dialogue. And she would say, I can do this with my face. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Oh. Damn and right. so much of, of her her roles have been being in a, a position where she can't always speak uh-huh. in her in her previous work. And the director really trusted her to act with her eyes. I mean, yeah. they are a special effect in this movie yeah. as well. I did see a piece of an interview. Maybe it was that one. I'm not sure if it was that one or another one where the director said that there were screenings where the audience was saying, I want to actually see a piece of this abusive relationship. I want to see what he was doing to her, how he was treating her, because the film opens with her leaving. And the director said, you have to believe her. You have to just see how she's acting when she's leaving and understand that there's no reason to believe she would be doing that for any other Yeah, and I think that opening scene is so effective. Yeah, it's great. You know, in the original novel, the central metaphor it plays with is what happens when we can behave with impunity, when the social construct around us goes away, and if we're invisible, we can do anything we want. That invisibility, the technology of invisibility, as Netta mentioned, is uh, is transforms a good man into evil because he has no moral compass anymore. The smart thing this film does is to say, nope, it just exacerbates a pre-existing condition, mm-hmm. which is a much darker take, actually. It's a much smarter, darker take. Mm-hmm. I really like the, the film to get away with. Coming back to the catharsis, you know, there's a moment in Rear Window when Grace Kelly finally understands what Jimmy Stewart is going through. And it's this amazing moment. It's the singular moment of the film where she stands up slowly and she says, tell me what's going on. And when I saw it in, with an audience, they cheer at that moment because it is so satisfying. I didn't get that here. Yeah, I think that the energy dissipates 
not at the right pace mm-hmm. or something like that because there's I mean misdirection type of stuff close to the end is pretty common but it typically you'll have it then rebuild a lot and for me that didn't quite happen it was almost like the the fake ending was more dramatic than the actual ending and that was I don't know Netta looks dubious I think Netta likes the ending <laughs> I did like the ending and I'm very frustrated because I feel like we can't really discuss right. it yeah. <laughs> so just know that there is one person who was cool with the ending yeah I, was okay. cool with the ending. I wasn't so much not cool with it as I was it just felt a little bit as Glenn said it felt a little lumpy to me it felt a little bit like something about the structure was a tiny bit not right. And I'm not sure why. It can be a hard thing to kind of diagnose. I did want to add, I've talked before about movies and TV shows where they are depicting a headline from a newspaper or a website or whatever, and it never feels right. It's never written by somebody who knows how to write headlines. And this movie has a headline announcing the death of her husband. And it says, optics groundbreaker, so-and-so dies, you know, such and such. And I was like, groundbreaker? <laughs> Who would, groundbreaker? And then I realized they didn't want to say visionary. Ah, that's smart. That's very smart of them. It's very true. Smart. And it's interesting that you said her husband, because I think he's just her boyfriend. I mean, yeah. I think oh, he's just right. her partner. But the reason I think that's interesting is traditionally, if you look at like a movie like uh, the Julia Roberts movie, Sleeping with the Enemy, mm-hmm. right? It would be a husband. Yeah. And I think they go out of their way to suggest that this has happened fairly quickly. She points yeah, out at do. one point that they met in 2017. And so this has evolved fairly quickly and she's still not sure. What I think it does that they're not married is that it emphasizes that she gets to the point where she's sort of saying, I don't understand why he was so attached to me because this is just a guy she was with. It's not even a guy she went through a wedding with and they were legally, he just for no other reason, like really wanted to remain with her. Mm-hmm. It also, and I think you're completely right that there's a tension there that's foundational, but also there is an issue of an inheritance mm-hmm. where if they were married, it would be less of an issue. Right, right. That's absolutely good point. True. true. It wouldn't be an automatic, no, you're absolutely right. And, and that's in the trailer as well. Something else that I really that really pleased me about the movie was, um, I think at this point, one of the things that makes us all giggle a little bit about the Invisible Man is the idea that he's naked. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the way the movie dealt with the fact that he's not naked right. when he walks around, that in fact he has a skin, a black skin, interestingly mm-hmm. enough, that makes him kind of a super villain that contains him and embodies. In fact, it, it makes him embody the worst of the cyber sphere was something that I thought was really fantastic right. about yeah. it. Because yeah. so much of the original novel is about him being naked and having to kind of protect himself from the elements. So much of that business of the novel is about that. And know? and his nakedness actually is very primal and mm-hmm. it makes him like a little, like an animal. Mm-hmm. And here it's completely the inverse. Yeah, right. It's a sleek kind of nakedness. Yeah. Oh, and, you know, and interestingly, sorry, more dorky homework. The director of this movie worked closely with uh, people who were at women's shelters when he was doing this Mm -hmm. movie. And something that I really appreciated Mm -hmm. about this movie, too, was there was so much opportunity for real voyeurism and uh, and exploitativeness. And he does not go there. He's so careful. I think that, again, is part of why you don't watch this guy beat her up and torture yes. her prior to this kind of this uh, stage or watch of her things. showering naked you know yep. alright well if you get a chance to see The Invisible Man either now or later tell us what you think find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash PCHH or tweet us at PCHH that brings us to the end of our show you can follow Netta at Ula Beast. thanks to all of you <laughs> thanks to all of you for being here to talk about The Invisible Man 
Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for listening to Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. If you have a minute and you're so inclined, do subscribe to our newsletter. It's over at npr.org slash newsletter. We will see you all back here on Friday for the new adaptation of Emma and a discussion of Clueless. On a secret military recording, a sound so haunting, one scientist believed it could change the world. My mind was racing as I listened to this, and I thought, this, this is the way. Join NPR's Invisibilia for the first episode of our new season.